Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm John Hardman, President and CEO of the Carter Center, and welcome you to the first in this season's Conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives us a chance to share the work of the Center with all of our neighbors here in Atlanta, as well as in the Southeast region, and through our podcast with the nation. And we encourage you to learn more about the Carter Center Conversation Series by going to our website, cartercenter.org slash conversations. You can subscribe to the Carter Center Conversation Series on uh, and all the podcasts through iTunes as well. If you are so inclined and have the knowledge on how to do that, I haven't quite figured out <laughs> all that yet, but uh, I'm sure most of you know how to do it. We have a special welcome for our Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellows who are here with us tonight, as well as the Fellowship Board, the Mental Health Task Force, our ambassadors and Legacy Circle members, as well as our Board of Trustees and Board of Counselors. Now, for the next hour and a half, we will have the pleasure of hearing former U.S. President Jimmy Carter discuss our work, describe recent travels around the world, world on behalf of Carter Center programs, and answer your questions. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to write a question. There are index cards there uh, at your seats, and volunteers will be roaming around picking those up so that they will bring them up so we can ask those questions during the question time. But tonight we will start first with a brief video about the work of the Carter Center. There are six billion faces on Earth, some full of hope and dreams, others empty with despair, constrained by barriers that keep them from healthy and productive lives. The Carter Center works to tear down those barriers and create a world where everyone has a chance to live in peace and enjoy basic human rights. on human rights as a broad umbrella under which we not only have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, freedom of religion and that sort of thing, but also the right of people to have a decent home in which to live, to have food to eat, to have a personal freedom to choose their own leaders, and also to be free from unnecessary disease and hunger. Well, I think the main thing the Carter Center does is bring hope to people. It doesn't matter where we go. The Carter Center has worked in over 70 countries to advance peace and fight devastating diseases. The center's staff of over 150 people work in many of the poorest regions of the world. After leaving the White House, the Carters had a strong desire to continue to make a difference in the world. And in partnership with Emory University in 1982, they founded the Carter Center. 
The Carter Center was created as a place where people could resolve conflicts, like at Camp David. Over the years, the center has helped improve relations among nations and has opened the doors to peace. But it quickly grew to understand that peace is more than the absence of war. It is the building of strong democracies founded on human rights and justice for all. These are the seeds of permanent peace. Well, I think the main thing we've done is to promote the concept of freedom and democracy in countries that had never known what an election was. And this has been a transforming experience for many people. The center has observed over 76 elections in 30 countries, including Indonesia, Ethiopia, and Palestine. As a result, leaders are held accountable to the people in countries that have never had free and fair elections. The Carter Center is a leader in fighting neglected diseases. Diseases like guinea worm, river blindness, trachoma, and lymphatic filariasis. These are gone from the developed world, but they still afflict some of the poorest people on Earth. The uh, promising thing is that these diseases are all preventable because we've proven that in the rich world. If the folks are just given a chance to know what they can do to improve their own lives, then they can transform their own lives into an opportunity for hope and self-respect and anticipation of a better future. The eradication of guinea worm has been one of the major challenges of the Carter Center because this is such a horrible disease and is in such remote villages that no one else ever wanted to tackle it. And we're just on the verge of complete eradication of this disease from the face of the earth. And this will be the second disease in history ever completely eradicated. The transformation of a village population after one year of effort on their part, guided by us, is one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. The people of the Carter Center work for peace, fight disease, and most importantly, bring hope to those who never had it before. We are willing to take a chance that we might fail if we believe that the ultimate goal is worthwhile, worth our effort and worth an investment in people who have been neglected by others. We were the poorest, most isolated people in the world. And I think often if we weren't there, there would be nobody to help them. These people who have been suffering in the past when we work among them, or with them, we find that they're just as intelligent, just as ambitious, just as hardworking, and their family values are just as good as mine. The Carter Center works where the need is greatest to improve the lives of the poor, the disadvantaged, and those who have no voice. The center's accomplishments are a fitting tribute to its founders. There are literally hundreds of millions of people whose lives have been changed by what the Carter Center has done, plus many others who have benefited from the proof that we have provided to other agencies that they could do the same thing. Building hope is what we do at the Carter Center.
Well, as you heard on the video, President and Mrs. Carter founded the not-for-profit Carter Center in 1982, 28 years ago. And since then, the center's programs have helped to improve the lives of millions in more than 70 countries. The center's staff of now 175 wage peace, fight disease, and build hope by engaging not only at the highest levels of government, but working side by side with often the most forgotten or disadvantaged people at the grassroots level. The Carters are our hardest working volunteers at the center and are integrally involved in all of our work. They travel tirelessly around the world, working with our staff to monitor elections, to resolve conflicts, to promote human rights, and to eradicate and control diseases. I'm not, after our very quick trip to North Korea and China over the last two weeks, I'm not sure President Carter would agree with me when I say tirelessly, uh, but uh, he will comment on that uh, shortly. But their vision for a world at peace guides all of our work here at the Carter Center and serves as an inspiration to the millions of people around the world seeking a better way of life. So join me in welcoming President Jimmy Carter. You probably have already noticed a sad omission at the head table. And let me say that the most unhappy and disappointed woman, a person in the United States right now is my wife, who can't be here. Uh, when we got back from uh, China, she developed very quickly influenza. And she had a terrible high fever the night before last and came up to Emory University yesterday for analyses. And uh, they sent her back home to bed. We have a very good doctor in Plains. And she called me a few minutes ago and said that the CDC has finally analyzed her illness. And she has H3N2 type A influenza. <laughs> and she wanted me to announce pr uh, proudly that it's the first case of that kind that CDC has found this year. <laughs> well, Rosen uh, is particularly distressed not to be with her fellows and with the human rights uh, aspect of uh, mental illness, and also the Rosen Carter Institute will be meeting this week, so this was going to be her big week at the Carter Center, but uh, her influenza is contagious for seven days, so I don't know how we can maintain the intimacy of our marriage uh, <laughs> and, and my avoid getting uh, influenza. So if I come down with influenza in the next five days, you'll know that we didn't... Uh, uh, <laughs> emphasize the, uh, the separation. I think what I'll do tonight is what I usually do, and that's just to remind you of some of the basic principles of the Carter Center. Uh, the most important, perhaps, of which is that we try to fill vacuums in the world. And as I've said many times, if the United Nations or the U.S. government or World Health Organization or the 
World Bank is taking care of a particular problem, then we don't get involved in it. But if we see a real need in people's lives anywhere on earth that is not being filled by a strong and able attempt, then we take a chance. And as was said in the video, which I just watched, uh, sometimes we fail. But we don't mind risking failure if we think that the possible success is worth a chance. So that's what we do. And in addition to treating the most uh, neglected diseases, which is the way the World Health Organization defines them, none of which are still known in the rich world, uh, and we try to improve the uh, production of food grains for people to eat, and we deal with very troubled elections on Earth. I think it's 76 or something, pushing 80. None of which have been assured of success. If we are fairly certain that an election can be reasonably successful, then the Carter Center doesn't get involved in it. We just go where we feel, at least that without our presence, the election would fail. And so we do that. And on occasion, we get involved in the negotiation for peace uh, when uh, a civil war or war between two nations is threatened. So to fill a vacuum in health care is important, to fill a vacuum in democracy is important, to fill a vacuum in environmental equality is important, uh, to fill a vacuum in human rights as we know it, uh, emphasized in this country is important. But tonight I, I want to uh, concentrate just a little bit on diplomacy because I feel that this is one of the main innovative things that the Carter Center does. And part of it is a fault, I would say, of our government in Washington. Uh, just a few minutes ago, I was meeting with the British ambassador to Washington. And we discussed the fact that uh, in almost every country, France maintains diplomatic contacts. It's a rare occasion when France would withdraw their ambassador and say, we're not going to communicate with you. And Great Britain has a very few countries where they would do the same thing. But the United States now and in recent years has been very much inclined to sever all contacts with people with whom we disagree. If I ask you to name the key countries involved in potential peace in the Middle Eastern region, uh, you would probably name Syria. We don't have an ambassador in Syria because we have some differences of opinion with the government in Syria. Uh, the Carter Center doesn't have those differences. So we maintain constant contact with the president and his cabinet in Syria. In fact, young President Assad, Rosa and I have known him since he was a college student in London studying ophthalmology. And so now when we go to that region, we always go and visit with him to try to see how we can induce Syria to help with problems involving terrorism and peace between them and Israel on the Golan Heights and so forth. 
Another very important country is Nepal, the home of Mount Everest. For a long time, we've been deeply involved in Nepal, trying to get them to have an honest election and to formulate a constitution that's democratic in nature to take the place of a very despised and corrupt king that was disposed from his throne a while back. The Carter Center was there when we had an honest and fair election. A group of Maoists won the election, and we have been working with them ever since. The United States will not have any relationship with the Maoists. So therefore, partially because of that vacuum, an absence of United States involvement, the Nepalese have not been able to put together a constitution. Our ambassador in Nepal is totally forbidden from having any communication at all with a political party that won a clear plurality in an honest and fair election that the Carter Center monitored. All of you know about Cuba. Through the lifetime of most of you in front of me, we've not had diplomatic relations with Cuba, except that when I was president, we established an interest section in Washington, and we now have a representative of the Cuban government in Washington, and we have an interest section in Havana with an American representative there. That was done just because I believed that it was best to send a flood of American visitors to Cuba. I think that's the best way to bring about democracy. But we still have economic boycott against the 12 or 13 million Cuban citizens. And their deprivation economically, because they can't get food, medicine, and so forth, trade because of the United States boycott, gives the dictators in Cuba a chance to claim that all their economic problems are because of the American sanctions. I think the best way to bring about democracy and freedom in Cuba is to open up and let American citizens, you and me, like every other citizen on earth, have a right to go to Cuba. This is not a restraint imposed by Castro and his brother. It's a restraint imposed by our own government in not letting American citizens go to Cuba if you want to go, just to have a vacation or to do business deals and so forth. Another very important problem is in the Mideast peace process. The Carter Center has monitored every election that the Palestinians have had, all three of them. The first one was when Yasser Arafat was elected president of Palestine, and they also elected a parliamentary system, 30, 88 members. After Arafat died, the Carter Center monitored the election to choose his replacement, Mahmoud Abbas, which is known as, who is known as Abu Mazen now. The third election we monitored there was in January of 2006, and Hamas won the election. Every candidate for Hamas pledged that they would resolve differences with Israel and with their fellow Palestinians peacefully. But after they won the election, then the United States declared that they were terrorists. And it's illegal now to deal with Hamas. So when Hamas and Fatah, the two Palestinian factions, try to come together, the United States is opposed. To that, for fear that in the future election Hamas might prevail again with a free and fair vote 
of the Palestinian people. Another example is in North Korea. We refuse to deal directly with the North Korean government. Sixteen years ago, I was invited to come over by their dictator, Kim Il-sung, whom I despised. I was a submarine officer in the uh, Pacific Ocean during the Korean War. And I looked on Kim Il-sung as my personal enemy because more than 50,000 of my fellow Americans who were in the armed services were killed there. But later, the United States refused to communicate with him or with anybody in Pyongyang, their capital. So he wanted to have a peace agreement with the United States and with South Korea. So he urged me to come over there. I finally went over the somewhat opposition from the White House. And he and I negotiated a completely harmonious agreement to denuclearize the, North, the peninsula that includes South and North Korea and to work on a peace treaty. And Bill Clinton's administration accepted it. Later, George W. Bush threw it in the wastebasket in 2002. And after that, the North Koreans began to reprocess spent fuel rods from their old graphite-reacted, graphite-moderated nuclear reactor. And now they have enough nuclear explosives to make six or seven bombs. Later, though, in President Bush's administration, he began to have the so-called Six Power Talks. And in September of 2005, they negotiated another agreement that was exactly the same is the one I negotiated with Kim Il-sung and later President Clinton negotiated by talks in Geneva. But since then, there have been no peace talks in North Korea or South Korea. So this is the kind of problem that the Carter Center faces. And I would say that in all of those areas, the United States won't become involved but the Carter Center does. Another very serious example is in Sudan. We've had monitors in Sudan for the elections now for more than two and a half years. We were there this past April when they had an election all over the country. They're facing another referendum in January. An important factor is the unsavory government in Khartoum. And some of the others that I mentioned are unsavory. I'm not saying they're not. But we maintain contact with the government in Khartoum, but the United States government does not. Well, this is just the way it is. But the point I'm making is the Carter Center tries to fill vacuums even in diplomacy when it's very sensitive sometimes to do so. I've never been to a foreign country, even when it was sensitive, like the ones I've mentioned, without letting the White House and the State Department know I was going. And if the President or the Secretary of State objected, we didn't go. In July, for instance, I got an invitation from North Korea to come there because they were holding a young prisoner. Ajalan Gomes was his name. He crossed the border from China into North Korea by walking across a frozen river in January. And he was arrested. I think he expected to be arrested. 
And he was put on trial, and he was sentenced to eight years of hard labor and a fine of 700,000 U.S. dollars. Well, we didn't have any communication with North Korea. So they called and asked me to come over there to get Mr. Gomes. And they said that they would not let him go to anyone except me. Obviously, they wanted me to come back over there. So it took me five weeks to get permission from the White House to go. But Dr. Harmon and I went over there a couple of weeks ago. And they put, and they, they, they made me write out a request personally, not representing the United States, but representing the Carter Center, to get Gomes free. So they put him back on a retrial and issued a pardon and finally let him go. It took 36 hours after we got there, but they finally let him go. And in the process, what they wanted me to do was to meet with the leaders of North Korea to let them tell me again that they were eager to have peace talks that would lead to denuclearization of the peninsula and a permanent peace treaty with the United States and South Korea to replace the ceasefire that's existed ever since I was a young submarine officer. <laughs> a week later, we went to China. They told me when I was first invited to North Korea that I would meet with Kim Jong-il, who is the chairman of their Defense Commission. He's not the head of state. The head of state is a, a man who is the president of the so-called Presidium, which is their parliament. And he had met with me when I was over there 16 years before that. And so I met with him for about four hours and then met with the negotiator for North Korea in the so-called Six Power Talks for another couple of hours. And, and the message they gave me to bring back to Washington was that they wanted peace. And the North Koreans were willing to give up their nuclear capability under the supervision of the International Atomic Energy Agency if the United States and South Korea and Japan and China and Russia would negotiate with them. In China, where Kim Jong-il was while I finally got, when I finally got to Pyongyang, I met with the leaders there. Wen Jibao is a premier of China. And I asked him what message Kim Jong-il brought to China. And he said the same message that they gave me in Pyongyang. So, so this is the kind of thing that the Carter Center is able to do. Basically, uh, we go where we wish. We meet with whom we choose. And we say what we believe. And, and I, I say this thing not, not to brag about the Carter Center, but you're here because you're interested in our health program, our mental health program under Roseland, and, and our programs on democracy. And I thought you might also be interested in some, a little bit more information about our diplomatic uh, efforts as well. 
So that's the kind of thing that the Carter Center does. I think in, in general terms, in all those areas, we still try to fill the vacuum by doing things that others don't want to do or cannot do because of diplomatic niceties. And so that's part of bringing peace. And, and I have to confess to you, which you probably already ascertained, that we, that we meet with some unsavory people. We meet with some outcasts from international diplomatic circles. Maybe the Maoists in Nepal, maybe the president of Syria, maybe Hamas, maybe North Korea, maybe Castro. But, but they are the ones that can resolve a problem involving an unwarranted war or abuse of human rights or, or something of that kind. So that's what, that's the message I want to bring you tonight. And now I'll be glad to answer your questions on any subject, but I want to apologize again on behalf of Rosen, who is distressed that she can't be here to correct my mistakes and to give you <laughs> the real facts. Thank you. Okay, we've got some very good questions, and we will uh, uh, ask as many as we can uh, fit in. I want to thank all of you who sent in questions online. As you know, this is, on, this is being podcast as well, and we were able to only choose a few of those, uh, but we have uh, a lot of questions from the audience uh, here. Well, speaking of Rosalind, uh, maybe you could say the first question is, in three words, could you tell us how you have managed to maintain such a beautiful marriage? Uh, well, uh, I, I'm, this is not, this not count my three words. Uh, we've been together more than 64 years. And I would say... Uh, Three words would be space <laughs> and um, communications and cooperation. Rose and I decided kind of off in our marriage after several years that we would give each other as much room to do our own things as possible. So you, you, those of you who know us know that she has her own areas of competence and interest. I have mine. We cooperate when we can. But we've made a decision not to ever go to sleep at night without talking over any differences we had during the day. And so we keep that promise. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes we stay up pretty late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would say always communicate. That's two words. And space is the other one. <laughs> Great. <laughs> How would the U.S. be different today if they had taken to heart all of the recommendations of your crisis of confidence speech? Well, the crisis of confidence speech, so-called, was um, designed to bring the United States government together, which was divided then on the issue of energy. And I define energy as a moral equivalent of war, because I felt that it was a, uh, you might say, a, a, a weight around our necks that was dragging our country down economically and also 
as far as our national spirit and confidence uh, was concerned in our ability. At the time I went into office, we were importing eight and a half million barrels of oil per day from foreign sources, some of them negative to us. We had a, a, a boycott from the Arab countries in OPEC against us. And we imposed, finally, a very comprehensive energy policy. And within five years, we had reduced that from eight and a half down to 4.3 million barrels a day. We cut it in half. Now, by the way, it's up to 12 million barrels a day. So I think that uh, speech was designed to tell the American people that we had overcome some very difficult problems. In, in recent years, before I made that speech, uh, we had had the disgrace of Watergate and the assassination of John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. and so forth. We were, and, and we had the Vietnam War, where American leaders had told lies about what we were doing in Vietnam. So all of that came before I was president. So I thought that if we could resolve our differences and work together on a comprehensive energy policy, which we did, that it would heal a lot of those wounds. So that's a, a roundabout answer to the question of the purpose of the speech and what I thought it would accomplish. And so had we maintained that energy policy, then we would not be dependent now on foreign oil at all. 20% of our total energy would be from renewable sources, that is solar and wind and, and other things like that. And uh, the United States would be in the forefront of the world in producing the technology that the whole world is gonna need to get away from excessive dependence on, on uh, petroleum products. So if we had carried out what I said, things would have been better, there's no doubt. What is the best way I can motivate young students, teenagers, to become less involved with their lives and begin to focus on others around them? Uh, I think tomorrow night I'll be over on the Emory campus making my 31st town hall meeting. And, and I get this question every now and then from college students. What should we do but with our own lives? And, and my advice to them is to concentrate on your studies concerning whatever talent you have and whatever career you have in mind. Most of my children and grandchildren have changed their minds sometime during college about from one thing to another. But whatever you choose as a permanent career to be a lawyer or a teacher or a business person or an accountant or, or whatever, to expand your heart and mind as much as possible in ancillary or additional things, uh, hobbies or find ways to reach out and bring in other people that you wouldn't ordinarily encounter in your own career into your life. And try, if possible, to affect their lives for the better. And uh, my experience is, I believe it's uh, a truism almost, is that those uh, efforts to, to stretch our own minds and hearts are always gratifying. We always get more out of them than we do in a way of sacrifice. And they're always unpredictable and always adventurous and they're always exciting. So that's what I would advise young people to do. I had the same question, by the way, recently in, in China. I, I'm, when I go to China, I make speeches to large university groups. 
And you may be interested in this. This is not, a, I've already answered the question. This is a separate thing. But it's interesting to go to a, a, a university like I did in Hunan province with John, John Hardman last week. And I spoke to several thousand students there. We didn't need interpreters. The moderator was, spoke in English. I spoke in English. And when I got questions from the audience, the students stood up all over the crowd and asked a question in English. And so they are, they're studying with, with, with deep dedication to prepare their lives for a constantly changing broad world. And that's another aspect of, of advice to teenagers, you know, to not only stretch your heart and mind to encompass people that you can help out, but just to learn about the broad aspects of the uh, comprehensive world in which you're going to be living. Well, I think Mrs. Carter would be interested in hearing your response to this one. <laughs> Why did the center create the journalism fellowships and how has their work helped fight stigma against mental illness? I have heard this answer 4,000 times. So I <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you put Rosen in any sort of a strange environment, no matter who the audience is, no matter what the question is, part of the answer is going to be her journalism program because she feels that the worst affliction that's unaddressed in the world is stigma or condemnation of people that have a mental illness. And it's uh, largely unaddressed. And one of the basic problems was when she first started that most of the major news media, including the top television networks and newspapers and magazines and so forth, radio programs, sometimes contributed to that stigma by condemning mentally ill people and making them seem to be not acceptable in society. And she felt that, that to bring in journalists who were top-notch experts in their own field and to let them learn more about mental illness and the adverse effect of stigma would be the best way to help reduce the affliction of stigma in their countries and in our own nation. So that's why Rosen feels that the, um, her journalism fellows studying the aspects of mental illness and stigma has been one of the greatest things that happened in her life. And she's convinced me that she's correct. <laughs> How do you think the preponderance of camera cell phones will influence election monitoring in this country and abroad? Well, I think one of the most prevalent news stories now is the hundreds of millions of people in very poor countries that now have cell phones. And they don't yet have access to the internet, but, but that's increasing rapidly as the, as the Wi-Fi becomes available in more and more very poor countries. But it, it's hard to go anywhere in Uganda or in South Africa or in India and, and so forth without seeing people, even the poorest of people, uh, using uh, cell phones to communicate with, with their friends and neighbors, but also to promote um, their own career, whatever it might be. I was reading in The Economist magazine last night on the way up here about farmers in uh, India who wanted to sell their crops and they didn't, sometimes when they harvest their crops in, on their farm, 
and then have to walk maybe 15 to 20 miles to the city to sell their squash or beans or corn or whatever it is, they didn't have any way to know whether their crop would be saleable or whether it would be a, a flood of, of the same products so they couldn't sell their crop. Now they can just make a, a call for maybe 10 cents and find out where the markets are good. So I think the whole world is, is going to be improving. It's intercommunication because of, um, of cell phones and, and in the future the internet. And, and of course this gives uh, every country that's going through a, a torturous or difficult election a, a chance for citizens to communicate from one city to another. When we first started monitoring elections, there was no way to communicate between two, two towns that were five miles apart. Now the people know what's going on. And they not only know what's going on on election day, but they can share opinions about the different candidates. And even though they don't have television with negative advertisements <laughs> or billboards or even common radio, uh, each person that is respected can make 15 or 20 calls on a cell phone and say this is a person I think would be very beneficial for our village if he's elected or she's elected and, and, and shape the outcome of the election. So it'll be good not only to have better understanding of candidates and their platforms but also on election day to expose fraud or the threat of violence on improper election outcome. And in fact, uh, the Carter Center had a team in the Philippines in May doing just that. We had been working with Georgia Tech on how to use text messaging as well as cell phone technology to get the results of the polling stations back to not only the monitors, but the Central Election Commission. So the, the fact that they were able to, to use this technology was something that our election standards group has been working on and it tested out very effectively in the Philippines. And by the way, the quarter cent observers use the same thing now because it used to be a rare and difficult operation for us to go into a country like in Nicaragua or Panama when we first started because we had a very difficult time with radio hookup from the remote areas of that country into the capital city so we could just keep up with what was going on. Now we can just use a regular telephone, cell phone system in that country to communicate easily. So it's, it's good for rich people from outside as well as it's good for people who live out. Now this questioner signed it, Elizabeth, age 13, and she's got a big smiley face on the question. Who's your favorite singer? What? Who is your favorite singer? Singer. <laughs> Willie Nelson. <laughs> and my second favorite is Bob Dylan and I've got some others too but she only asked one so I'm going to take the easy way out <laughs> Willie Nelson and I are big buddies uh, he used to come to the White House when I was in there and we would, we would jog early in the morning he and I would both run about five miles a day when he was up there and he, then at night he would come into the second floor of the White House and play his guitar and all of us would sing so I've been to five or six of, of um, Billy Nelson's concerts, and he always invites me up on the stage for the finale. And, and he and I usually sing a duet of uh, Amazing Grace. And he turns the microphone very carefully away from my mouth. <laughs> Over to his, because he knows I can't carry a tune. But we, we sing, and also when I 
won the Nobel Peace Prize, William Nelson came over to Oslo, Norway, and uh, St. George on my mind. Uh, he forgot the words, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, when I was inaugurated president, uh, William Nelson was the one that I invited to sing the Star Spangled Banner when I won the nomination as a Democratic candidate in 1976. He, al he also forgot the words, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't really matter, does it, when William Nelson forgets words. But anyway, William Nelson's my favorite. Congratulations on your successful recent trip to North Korea. What can you tell us about life there? Well, as I, as I told you earlier, Rose and I were there for the first time 16 years ago. It's a, a relatively closed society as far as outside intrusion on knowledge is concerned. It's a highly secretive uh, communist dictatorship. It's um, led by, first of all, Kim Il-sung, who, who you might characterize as a combination in America of George Washington and Jesus Christ. And I'm not exaggerating. They literally worshiped Kim Il-sung. Every person in North Korea, even those working in potato field, will have a beautiful little ceramic button on their collar with his photograph on it in color. And, uh, he died just a month after we were there. So they really revere me, in a way, for being the last person that met with Kim Il-sung before he passed away. And uh, I'm the only person in the United States, obviously, that ever met uh, with Kim Il-sung in, in the political world. Uh, Billy Graham and his wife used to meet with uh, Kim Il-sung. Ruth Graham, Billy, Billy's wife, was educated in Pyongyang. And Kim Il-sung made it plain to me that he would not have survived had it not been for Christian missionaries who saved him from Japanese when he was captive. So he, he had a soft heart. But, but anyway, they worship him. And they, they still practically worship his son, Kim Jong-il. Uh, Kim Il-sung saved them from Japanese invasion. He also saved them from what they called uh, the American and, and South Korean invasion uh, in the late 1940s and early 50s. So he was a hero on the battlefield. His son, though, is anointed uh, as his successor. And, and they called him the dear leader. They called Kim Il-sung the great leader. I noticed this for the first time. I was surprised when we got there that they are now referring to Kim Jong-il also as a great leader. I never heard that before. He has now apparently planning to designate his youngest, youngest of three sons, Kim Jong-un, to be the successor. That hasn't yet been announced for sure yet, and we're not certain about it. But it's a, as I say, it's a closed society. It's highly disciplined. Uh, they're suffering horribly, maybe because of their communist system, but also because the United States imposes the strictest possible sanctions against the people of North Korea. And so we are punishing every person who lives in North Korea with our economic sanctions. So it's hard to explain the proper way to handle that. They, they treated uh, Dr. Harmon and me with uh, complete graciousness. 
and friendship, and we couldn't do anything without their taking complete care of us. Um, they captured this American prisoner, uh, Agilon Gomes, on the 28th, I think, of January, put him in prison, even in prison, though he had his own private cell. And then later, uh, he tried to commit suicide, and they transferred him to a, a hospital in Pyongyang, the capital, and he had his own private room. And, and American doctors who visited him, including Dr. Hardman, who's a psychiatrist, uh, certified that he was treated superbly by them. So I, they, they are, it's a closed society. I think they would like to be accepted in the um, world political environment. Uh, they do some strange things because we just don't understand them. Their religion is called Juchi. J-U-C-H-E, which means self-sufficiency. And this is what Kim Il-sung inaugurated when he became the, the uh, political leader of North Korea, which means they don't depend on any outsider to take care of their problems. They pride themselves on being self-sufficient. And uh, it's a destitute society in many ways. Uh, they live under 100% propaganda. The only thing they know is what their state government-controlled radio and television and newspapers tell them. And so you might say they are largely brainwashed, but they are proud of their country. And the last thing I'll say about them is they're extremely intelligent. They have developed under even those economic sanctions uh, superb military capabilities. And... Uh, and they do some really advanced work in other ways. So uh, that's, I, I've just visited a couple of brief times, but in the last 16 years, the Carter Center has concentrated on learning all we could about what was going on about the North Korean and, and South Korean interrelationships, because someday the Carter Center hopes to play a small role in bringing peace uh, to those people. Another observation was were the preponderance of flowers everywhere. In yeah, New York City, you see newsstands on every corner. In Pyongyang, there were flower stands on right. every corner. And President Carter was taken with this large red flower called the Kim Jong-il flower. Yeah. It's a, what, what's the name of the kind it's of flower? It's probably a dahlia. A dahlia. It's a dahlia. It's that big around. And brilliant red, and it's everywhere. Even when they have billboards on the main streets of Pyongyang, that advertise other things, all around the borders of that billboard would be flowers. And in almost every apartment that you see in Pyongyang, on the windowsill, they got flowers and all in this choir. Flowers everywhere. It's, 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 it's very interesting, and that's one of the things that Rosen likes best about, about North Korea. What lessons from your experience with the Camp David Accords could be beneficial to the current Middle East peace negotiations? Well, first of all, um, when I became president, they had had four horrendous wars involving Israel and the Arabs in the previous 25 years. And the leaders in every case on the Arab side had been Egypt, who was the only Arab country that had adequate weaponry to compete with the Israeli weapons. 
of military forces. So I decided at the first day of my term to begin working on the Mideast peace process the highest priority. So the first month or two, I was meeting with the top leaders of Israel, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and so forth. And so I began to bring them together, and eventually I was lucky enough to get two courageous men, Menachem Begin, who was more negative than, I would say, than Netanyahu is now. I mean, we, we were in despair when Begin was elected, but he was a man of, of great personal intelligence and courage, and he was willing to take a chance on peace, even though it displeased his supporters, his right-wing supporters in Israel. You have to remember that previous to that, back in the 1950s, Begin was classified as a number one terrorist in the Middle East by the British government. He blew up a bomb in the King David Hotel and killed 96 innocent people who were staying there that, that night, for instance. But he became a peace champion. And so I think, the, and then the other thing is to have a strong interlocutor or negotiator, mediator, and that's what I tried to be. But I, but I brought these two strong men together at Camp David in seclusion. And we decided before we went there that we would not let any news media come in. And we would discourage any communication between the Israelis and the, and the Arabs, Egyptians, to the outside world. Sometimes we knew they were making secret phone calls, but we would, I won't tell you how we knew, but we knew when they were it. <laughs> so we would discourage that very severely. So they were closed up, you might say, and, and they finally reached a total agreement uh, on the last day. So that's some of the lessons to be learned now, to be to be persistent and to put it as a highest possible priority. Now, I, I'm grateful that Hillary Clinton is, is going to be the number one negotiator. And I look on her as a very formidable and strong-willed and competent person. So I think that if there's any chance that we'll have another accommodation, uh, that, that would be, she would be a, a key uh, player. I, I can't predict what's going to happen because Netanyahu now has a coalition government that's uh, his two major partners are against any concessions concerning the settlements in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. Uh, when, when I go over to the, to the Mideast, to, to Israel, most of Netanyahu's cabinet members refuse to meet with me because of some of the books I've written, but uh, his partners will meet with me. One of them is, is head of Shas party and, uh, and, and Shah's party, that has about 12 votes, has told Netanyahu that if you put East Jerusalem on the table for discussion, we'll withdraw our 12 votes and your coalition government will fall. And the other man is named Lieberman, and, and he's more right-wing uh, even than Shah's. So Netanyahu has a, a serious problem in dealing with his present government. At the time of Camp David, of course, when we were successful, uh, Prime Minister Begin was head of Likud and he didn't have to have a, a coalition that was more negative than he is. So I, I pray always. That's, that's been my top life priority in foreign international affairs for the last 30 or more years is to see peace come to Israel and, and Israel's neighbors. And I, I can see a clear path 
to reach that, but I see also the difficulties involved. What other global health challenges would be your priorities after guinea worm is eradicated? Well, as you probably know, and many of you may know, the Carter Center has it, the only international task force on disease eradication in the world. It's financed almost exclusively by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Don Hopkins, who heads up our program, as you know, health program, is the head of it. And uh, there are about a dozen other top organizations that deal with international health that are members of this task force. And they meet every month, John? No, two or three times a year. Okay. In fact, they're meeting next month. Well, say three or four times a year. And, and, and what they do is, is it, it, by the name, Task Force on Disease Eradication, they analyze every human illness to ascertain which one might possibly be completely eliminated from a, from a country or region. That's eliminate is that word. Or eradicate means the entire world. So they analyze those diseases to see which ones might be eradicated. As you know, we're working on guinea worm. And the only other disease right now targeted is polio. And polio's having some really serious setbacks. We continue to make good progress on guinea worm. The only disease ever eradicated pr prior to this is smallpox. And that took place in 1979. So you see how rare it is. But we'll look into the future, and I, and I would guess that, that when we complete our effort on guinea worm, that Don Hopkins and his group, Dr. Harmon and I and Rosen and our trustees will decide on maybe another disease. My own personal preference right now would probably be measles. Measles has become a very virulent disease lately with more and more people dying from measles. And Kofi Annan and I have mounted a campaign to try to get the Gates Foundation and WHO to, to look more seriously at measles. But I would hope that the Carter Center might adopt measles or perhaps some other uh, disease if it's possible to eradicate them. Uh, we don't know about things like um, malaria or lymphatic polariasis or cystosomiasis. It may be that one of those would be a suitable. But I, I would hope that the Carter Center might adopt a disease to be eradicated. It, it's a, it's a, it kind of focuses the whole world's attention on that particular disease and gives us some partners in the process that we might not have if we just at random took a disease that was serious but, but didn't have a chance to do away with it. Dr. Hardman knows more about this than I do and he, he's been nice to let me fumble through the answer. No, you, you did a great job with that. <laughs> <laughs> what is your best memory as to your naval military service? Well, uh, I, had a, I had a top secret meeting this afternoon uh, in the depths of, uh, of the Carter Presidential Library with every, everything wiped out so nobody could hear what was said about the uh, operations of the USS Jimmy Carter, a, a very advanced submarine. And so that is right now my most pleasant relationship with the Navy from which I departed a long time ago. But, but having a, a, a major warship named for me and, and being briefed every year by the captain and so forth, it, is a, it keeps me abreast of what's going on in the Navy. I would say that the Naval Academy 
was my goal in life <clears throat> when I was five years old. If anybody asked me then, which a lot of people did, a few people did, not a lot, uh, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to, I would say I want to go to Annapolis and be a naval officer. And, and that was my goal all the way through grammar school and high school and a couple of years of college. And then I finally got to the Naval Academy and I graduated. And then I wanted to serve in submarines and I got that request. I qualified to be commanding officer of a submarine. And then the nuclear submarine Navy came into being. And I put in for that and I was one of the two officers chosen to work on Admiral Rickover to develop the first two atomic submarines. One was a Nautilus and the other one was a Seawolf. I was in charge of the crew that developed the uh, Seawolf. So I had some very gratifying experiences in the Navy. Uh, we lived in a lot of places. Uh, when we moved into our present home, which was built in 1961, that was our 15th house that Rose and I had lived in since we got married. So the Navy was a, an eye-opener for me, and I never have regretted the 12 years that I spent serving in the, in the U.S. Navy. <clears throat> so we had some good experiences. Rosalind, uh, I think, developed her independence in, in, while I was a naval officer. I was gone most of the time at sea, so she was a very quiet and, and, and somewhat timid and reticent young girl when I fell in love and, with her and ma we married, but uh, she developed a an independent spirit and an ability to handle difficult issues. Uh, sometimes the independent spirit comes back to haunt me now, but, uh, <laughs> but I would say that's another gratifying experience from the Navy. <laughs> Our three boys were born in the Navy, uh, in Navy hospitals. Their average cost was $6. <laughs> And uh, Amy was born after we came back to Plains. By the way, if Rosa was here, she would very quickly add, if you don't know, Amy just had her second son. Uh, right before we left for China, Rosa missed the North Korean trip because she thought the baby was coming and she couldn't be gone. Then we got back, the baby still hadn't come, so, so Amy appealed to the doctor to please uh, let her have the baby before we had to go to China. So. We were in the room when Amy's baby came into the world. One of the miracles of life. Have the two of you ever discussed writing another book together on the wisdom and faith of your 64 <laughs> years of marriage? If we had tried to write another book together, we wouldn't have had 64 years. <laughs> <laughs> If you got either me or Rosen off by yourself and, and said, in your marriage life, what's the greatest challenge to it? We would both say trying to write a book together. <laughs> it was the worst experience we have ever had. <laughs> when, when the Carter Center was first formed, we had a, a, a very elaborate health program here called Closing the Gap. And uh, Rosen and I decided to write a book about it and how individual human beings particularly Americans, we decide how long we live by how well we do what we know we ought to do for our own good health. Eat properly, take exercise, don't smoke, things like that. So we started writing a book together. And it ultimately came uh, a, a different book, but that was it. So we decided that I would write one chapter, Rosa would write the next chapter. And we, we both had brand new uh, word processors then, it was before computers. 
So I write very rapidly. So I could write my entire chapter in a few days. Rosen writes very carefully and meticulously. <laughs> Every sentence has to be perfect before she goes on to the next sentence. So I would give her my chapter to go over and she would give me her chapters to go over. Uh, she treated my chapters like a rough draft. And, uh, <clears throat> and she made changes, you know, hesitation. But when I looked at her chapters, it was just like she had gone to Mount Sinai. God had given her this. <laughs> God had given her this holy script. And if I changed the word, it was sacrilegious. So that was one problem. The other problem was we couldn't agree on the most simple things that happened. Uh, for instance, we had horrendous arguments about our first date <laughs> and about how we reacted to Navy life and how we, first place we lived in the Navy and, and how we handled our income when I was a Naval officer. Think, we couldn't agree on I, I, we, I, 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 I couldn't understand why she had such a faulty memory, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we, got, we, we would agree on 97%. But the other 3% became uh, very uh, difficult. We, we got so we couldn't even talk to each other. We just wrote ugly, ugly messages back and forth on the word process. <laughs> and so finally, we, we had gotten a fairly good advi advance from a publisher for this book. Um, and we, we decided to give the uh, advance back. <laughs> and we had, a, we had an editor who was persistent. He came down to Plains. And he said, he, he said, all right, I want you both to sit down at the same table. So we did. And he said, I don't want you to give up the book. Let me give you a compromise. You've got paragraphs in the book on which you cannot agree. We said, that's right. <laughs> and he said, okay, I'm going to divide the paragraphs that you can agree. He said, well, but I guess 100 paragraphs, 50 or 100. He said, I'm going to give Jimmy half of them. I'm going to give Rosen half. And, and Jimmy, you cannot comment on Rosen's paragraphs. She cannot comment on yours. So if you get this book and read it, uh, making the, everything to gain, making everything the best of the rest of your life. If you get the book, you'll see that some paragraphs have an R by it, <laughs> and other paragraphs have a J by it. <laughs> so that's how we saved our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer to that is, don't expect another book. No, not, to, not together. But she's a good editor, and when I write my own books, which I, I have 100% final say, she's the best editor I've got. And so I, I listen to her editorial comments very carefully, and I do the same way when she writes books. But, but then we reserve the right on my book, I make the final decisions. But no, we didn't know who was making the final decisions when we were equal partners. It, it don't ever do it if you... <laughs> How serious, seriously do you take the threat of man-made climate change, and what do you think of putting solar panels back on the White House? <laughs> I think the threat of uh, global warming is serious and real, and I've seen personal evidence of that. Uh, when I've been to Alaska, for instance, the top headlines in the very conservative 
Alaska newspaper was, polar bears will be extinct in 25 years. And there are a number of villages around the coast of Africa that have already been abandoned because of a slight rise in sea level and also because the ice barrier has now melted and waves are coming in during the storms that are high enough to wipe out the homes. And Rosa and I took a trip up to the, uh, well above the north, uh, the, uh, up, up to the North Pole, a while back north of Norway. And we saw ba uh, polar bears that were out in the middle of the ocean who formerly spent their lives very near icebergs. And those icebergs have now melted. And as you know, the ships are now going through the part of uh, the ocean that used to be frozen over. And the sea's gonna rise. So I think it's a very serious problem. And one of the main things we need to do is to stop putting carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide into the air. And you can do that by referring to what I said earlier tonight in the energy policy by cutting down on our consumption of, uh, of petroleum products, coal and oil, and shifting to clean burning elements of those two products, and also by conserving energy in other ways, like more efficient automobiles and more efficient air conditioners and things like that, and, and also use of solar power. Uh, it's very soon, Germ Germany has already passed the 20% mark with uh, windmills and, and photovoltaic cells and so forth. When, when John and I were, were over in, in China this, this past week, uh, one of the universities there had bought one of the solar panels that I put on top of the White House back in 1978 or 9. Uh, and we have one, by the way, in the Presidential Library here. Presidential Museum. Uh, I put 36 solar panels on top of the White House to provide enough heat for all the hot water systems in the White House. As soon as Ronald Reagan got in office, he publicly tore off all the solar panels and got rid of them. Uh, a college in Maine bought them as junk, and, and now they are selling them <laughs> as a curiosity. <laughs> so uh, we, we would be, the Chinese are in advance now of making the highest quality and most inexpensive uh, solar panels. We could have a monopoly on that if we had just persevered. So those are the kind of things that we need to do. Uh, when I became president, we, the average fuel efficiency of automobile was 12 miles per gallon. And two or three years ago, it was about the same if you include S SUVs and, and, uh, and, and other automobiles that, that pickup trucks. Now they've started moving very carefully toward more efficient automobiles. So those are the kind of things that, that, uh, that, that need to be done and can be done and other countries are doing. I think every human being on earth, particularly Americans who waste so much energy, ought to put this as a high priority. We ought to urge our government to be in the forefront of the nations that are really trying to deal with global warming. We've been the main obstacle to get an international agreement among the developed countries of the world on controlling global warming. I come from Finland, the country that is trying to brand itself as a peacemaker. What do you think of this kind of branding and is it good just to brand or good market or promotion of a country or do you see something else? Well, I think Finland and Norway and Sweden 
I think without argument are the countries most in the forefront are promoting the basic elements of human rights. And that would involve peace, democracy, freedom, the alleviation of suffering, control of uh, quality environment. And that's a very admirable thing for any country to do. And, and when small countries like Finland can take the leadership, uh, that's uh, something of which you can justify and be proud. We, most Americans, if you ask who is the number one superpower on earth, we would say without hesitation now, our country. And when I was president, I think most people would have to say, well, there are two superpowers on earth. One is the Soviet Union and the other one is the United States of America. Now, there's just one. And the primary reason we say that is because we, our defense budget is equal to the budget of every other country on earth combined. And, and we're in the forefront of going into Iraq, going into Afghanistan, and so forth. Uh, in fact, in the 12 years after I left office, the United States used its military force in action 32 times. So I, I, I'm not criticizing my country, which I love and, and of which I was a leader, and, and I still feel that it's the greatest country in which to live. But um, I, think if, I think any superpower, let's just leave a name off of it, I think ought to be the champion of peace. So that any... So that, so that any, any citizen in any country in the, world, in the world, if they have a threat to peace in their own country, would say automatically, for instance, I'm going to Washington because the people in Washington believe in peace. And I think we ought to be the champions of human rights. So that, so that any country, any person on earth that suffers from human rights abuse say, being put in, in prison without charges against you, without a lawyer to represent you, and not even put on trial, would say, let's go to Washington, because America stands for human rights. But, you know, we're the foremost country in starting wars. We're the foremost country now in, in holding prisoners, ostentation openly, in Guantanamo, those prisoners have been there now for years. No charges ever brought against them. Uh, no right to lawyer, a lot of them. And that we haven't even decided whether they can be tried in a military tribunal or in a civilian court. And, and when President Obama said, let's close Guantanamo, the members of Congress rose up and said, no. You can't transfer them to a secret into a secure place in, 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 in the United States. So, you know, we, we, we need to take on the aspect of uh, a superpower. And we should be in the forefront, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, in dealing with global warming. We ought to be the most generous nation on Earth. I just met, as I said a few minutes ago, with, before I came here with the British ambassador. They, they have passed a law that says that, that seven-tenths of one percent 
of their total budget every year has to be for benevolent causes, for, for foreign aid, you might say. The United States is about, instead of having seven-tenths of one percent, we're about two-tenths of one percent. And in, in, in Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Austria, the Netherlands, Canada, um, when they are members of Congress, or it's equivalent to run for office, one of the main things they say is, we're going to increase foreign aid, and it's very attractive. You can imagine what would happen in, in a congressional election in South Georgia or anywhere <laughs> if the congressman said, when I'm in elected to Congress, I'm going to increase foreign aid. It, it's a, but it's a, it's a, it's a kind of uh, characteristic of a nation that's shaped by whom? By us. By American citizens, you and me. And, and, and our members of Congress and presidents and others, they, they respond to, to it. So, so Americans need to promote the concept of, of greatness. And I, and I would say, to summarize, I've been rambling too much, but, but, but the characteristics of a great nation are the same as the characteristics of a great human being. I happen to be a Christian, and I would say that the characteristics of peace, justice, maybe humility, not pride, service to others, uh, forgiveness, compassion, love. Can you talk about the need for stability in southern Sudan to finish the Guinea worm eradication program? And are you committed to finishing the job? Well, the Sudan has been a, a matter of concentration for the Carter Center since 1988, uh, when we began to go there to, uh, to deal with health problems and, and other issues. And they were embroiled then in a a civil war that lasted a total of more than 20 years. Uh, about 2.3 million people were killed in the civil war, where the 10 states were fighting against the 15 northern states. The 15 northern states are controlled by a Muslim government in Khartoum, and the 10 southern states are non-Muslims. And so the argument has been the form of government and, and how to relate government to religion. And so um, finally, um, under George W. Bush, the U.S. government joined in with the Carter Center and others and brought about an effort to bring peace to Sudan. And they reached out to a very fine former U.S. Senator, John Danforth, and asked him to be the special envoy, and he negotiated what's called a comprehensive peace agreement in 2005. And one of the aspects of that agreement was that there would be a ceasefire, which, and there's a fragile ceasefire now that lets us get in and work on guinea worm. But at the end of that six years, and that expires the 11th day of, of next January, 2011, the southern 10 states can vote in a referendum, do we want to have complete independence or do we want to be part of Sudan? And the likelihood is they're going to vote for independence. 
and, and that's going to bring about very serious strain between the North and South again. It might erupt into war because there's a lot of oil that's been found now in Sudan right on the borderline between North and South Sudan. And I would guess that 75% or more is in Southern Sudan. And there's no way to get from Southern Sudan to the ocean or, or to market the oil. So the pipeline has to go through Northern Sudan. So it's very complicated. And, and, and the Carter Center is working every day to try to help this complicated process go toward a peaceful resolution. As I said earlier, the U.S. government doesn't deal with the government in Khartoum because Omar al-Bashir is an unsavory leader. And, and, and so it makes it difficult for the U.S. government to, to put as much emphasis as possible as you might say partners with the Carter Center or vice versa. We, we would rather be partnered with the United gov uh, U.S. government. But, but we hope and pray that there will be some resolution of it because other countries are very eager to help in, in, uh, in Sudan and the United Nations is involved there as well. So, so we have hopes that Sudan can overcome it. But that relationship that we have in dealing with guinea worm gives us kind of an entree into villages all over the, the most troubled parts of southern Sudan. So, so we're there every day working on peace for the future and to eradicate guinea worm. What can you tell us about your work with the elders? The elders is a concept that was evolved by several people. I won't go into detail about that. Um, but it was formed ostensibly by Nelson Mandela, who said, let's choose uh, up to a dozen leaders in the world scattered about geographically, who are no longer involved in politics. So that's what's happened, and, and the elders has just passed his third birthday. We're still feeling our way along. But uh, at, at this time, Nelson Mandela was supposedly a member, but he never has been physically able to serve. But his wife uh, is, is an elder, and Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu is an elder, and former Secretary General of the United Nations Kofi Annan is one, as well as Grove Brundtland, who was the Prime Minister of Norway and later the head of, of the World Health Organization, um, and um, the former president of Brazil, Cardoso, I'm, a, I'm an elder, uh, and Mary Robinson, the former president of uh, Ireland, who was the first United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, and a, and a man named Lakdar Brahimi, maybe the best one of us of all, who was the chief negotiator for, for the United Nations and retired. So that's a 10, ten of us. Oh yeah, and one is Elabat. Elabat is a very small, quiet, brilliant woman from India who deals with, with women's human rights. And she has micro loans capability in India and, and deals with about two million uh, low-income Indian women. So that's a, that's a 10 elders. And we have, uh, the elders have supposedly the same characteristics that the Carter Center does. Since we're not involved in politics anymore, as I said earlier, we, we can go where we choose, we meet with whom we please, we say what we believe. And so that's what the elders uh, should be. And, and we are feeling our way along, although we've had some need to, to bring all of us together in a harmonious way. 
So we'll have another meeting in November uh, in, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, and we just met in, in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, the last meeting, which may be the last time we'll ever have a chance to meet with Nelson Mandela, who's quite frail in his health. So the, the elders has, has some, some potential, I think, to help around the world. And by the way, the Carter Center works very closely with, with the elders. In fact, in October, the elders will be go, making a trip to, this, to the Middle East, which the Carter Center planned for us originally, and now the elders is gonna be part of it and take over. So a group of the elders will be going into Gaza for a couple of days, and then I'll meet them in, in, in uh, Cairo, Egypt, We'll meet with the Egyptians, then we'll go to, to Syria, where we'll meet with, with uh, the leaders of Syria and also Hamas. Then we'll come back to uh, the West Bank and meet with them. And then we'll also probably go to Saudi Arabia. And when we get through, the, the elders don't have any authority, like the Carter Center has no authority. But we, we hope to present our findings and our opinion to President Obama and to others that are involved in the Mideast peace process. And now we're down to the final question. How many countries have you visited and how many have you helped? <laughs> well, Rose, the last time Rose and I counted, we had been to 131 countries. Uh, we have a little atlas at home with a list of countries in the back and we check them off and we go to new ones. But I, I don't know about health. I, the Carter Center, I would say, has had uh, programs of a helpful nature in, what, 73 countries, John? Over 70, yeah. Over 70. So I would say 70 of those countries. Uh, some of the countries we've just visited briefly, and of course, uh, that counts Canada and Mexico. I don't know if we've helped them much, except we built habitat houses in Canada and Mexico, but, but um, 130 is what we've visited, and, and we have helped through the Carter Center, most of them. In fact, when I, when I received the, the Nobel Peace Prize, I had to answer this question on my computer today for the Nobel Committee. Uh, I said, how do you assess the Nobel Peace Prize that you received? And I pointed out it was, it was primarily, almost exclusively, for the work of the Carter Center. And I made this plain in my speech to the Nobel Committee that, that I was accepting the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the Carter Center. So all of you who are partners with us at the Carter Center, you can say we won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and it's not stretching the truth at all. Thank you, John. Well, this was a very special evening. I want to ask all of you to stay at your seats while President Carter leaves, but join me in thanking him for a wonderful discussion. The next program for our conversations at the Carter Center series will be After the War, Mental Health and a Veteran's Journey Home. This will be Tuesday, November 9th. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have posed a unique set of psychological challenges with the troops returning home due to multiple injuries or a greater prevalence of brain injury. 
So we will have a discussion on post-traumatic stress and the ways in which families and communities in the nation can support mental health and mental wellness for our veterans. You can make free reservations online at, again, the website, cardacenter.org conversations, beginning October 11th. Also, the, if you haven't seen the new exhibit at the Carter Museum, that's something you shouldn't miss. But there's also a great exhibit there called Freedom's Sisters. And this, is, uh, this will be there until October 3rd. And it's the story of 20 outstanding African-American women who have fought for human rights uh, from the 1800s to the present. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. We look forward to seeing you in November. Drive safely. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.